You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 354, The Battle of Valletta. It would be fair to say that for the spring and early summer of 1941, Admiral Cunningham gave more than he got. Problem was, each time he gave, he had ships lost or damaged, thus needing to be out of commission for weeks or maybe months. So by the time of early summer, the Admiral was most anxious about handling his numerous responsibilities, much less going on the offensive. True, he had people like Warby, who was getting the job done, as long as no one asked about any details, and the successes of the sub-upholder. Still, it was a close-run thing, and as there had been no major delivery of supplies since March, once again, the stocks on Malta were running low, which affected Cunningham's options. As Malta was the focal point of the Mediterranean War, its rapid-fire clashes in the air and at sea was draining everything and everyone. For example, when the recent arrivals, Tom Neal and Tommy Thompson, pilots who had participated in the Battle of Britain, were shocked, deservedly so, that the maintenance crews did not fill out such basic forms as DIs, or daily inspections. Those were in place to make sure that the fighters were ready to go, and if not, what exactly was wrong with them? So when Tom Neal almost did not make it back to Malta after chasing away some Italian bombers due to a lack of oil, when he questioned the ground crew, they had never heard of a DI. Why? Up until recently, there had not been enough time or personnel for such a regular checkup. Equally frustrating, but less dangerous, Tom and or Tommy went up practically every day that spring and early summer as the Italians were always trying to sneak their way to the island. 
but whether through radar or spotters, the bombers were noticed and the two pilots went up, with others. But practically every time, the Italians would turn and speed away. They did not drop their bombs, but the two Toms didn't get a shot at them either. It was a very frustrating time. But these are pilots we are talking about. Confident. Nay, cocky. So what does a pilot do if the enemy won't come to him? He goes to the enemy. Though it was mostly Blenheims and Wellington bombers that made the trips, some hurricanes were sent over as well, with specially rigged eight 25-pound bombs. And together, they all visited the various Regia Aeronautica airfields and left a parting gift. Which brings us once again to Adrian Warburton, or Warby. On July 14th, he and his crew were ordered on a reconnaissance mission to Catania, Sicily. But as they got closer, the clouds got thicker, to which Warby informed the crew they would be going under the clouds. Now, this was important in order to get his usual high-quality photos, but it also meant that the enemy would be able to see them. But Warby felt he had it all in hand. As he was taking his photos, he noticed the Italian ground crew, instead of shooting at him, were actually giving him permission to land, thinking he was one of theirs. So Warby let his wheels down and started to go down even further. To this, crewman Johnny Spires yelled, What the hell do you think you're doing? This is Catania, not Luca. The only reply from Warby was, I know. Before he could touch down, Warby pointed his plane's nose at the rows of planes beside the landing strip and let loose with his guns. Several planes were taken out and the pictures were taken. A good day. Another Warby special. With the Germans mostly gone and the abandoned Italians only bombing at night, it was time for the defenders to change their tactics as well. Thus, the Malta Knight Fighter Unit came into being near the end of July. The first one to join was one Edward Cassidy from 249 Squadron. He had started out on the night shift back home and was only too happy to get back to it. But on his way to transferring, he talked his friend Tommy Thompson into joining him. Soon, other pilots from other squadrons joined in, and all told, there would be eight planes and ten pilots. The planes were quickly painted black, and all were ensconced at Imdina, to the west of the center of the island, just before the mountains along the west coast. Putting their few possessions in the Zara Palace there, it was on loan from a baron, the men never had it so good, relatively speaking. The accommodations, while on duty, were bare, but the palace made up for it, and squadron leader George Powell Shedden saw to it that the men got along and were able to drink and relax during their downtime. Tommy Thompson considered this transfer the best move he ever made. But, as the ancients say, nothing has any business being perfect. And that was the case with this new MNFU. The idea was when an Italian bomber was detected, the pilots on duty would scramble. That's part one. Part two was that the searchlight crews would find and light up the incoming bombers. But that's where the plan went pear-shaped. Until the wrinkles were worked out, Tommy Thompson and company would find that it was they who were lit up, not only blinding them, but pointing them out to the Italians, making it easier for the enemy to hide from the fighters. But again, in time, this would be worked out, much to the detriment of the Italians. As previously mentioned, the Magic Carpet Service was keeping fuel on Malta enough 
for its plane and naval vessels, but just. Now in July, the stores were running dangerously low. Something had to give, which is when Admiral Cunningham relied on one of the oldest tricks in the book. Getting the permission of the first sea lord, Sir Alfred Dudley Pound, Cunningham had his fleet sail out from Alexandria and into the Mediterranean. This, of course, would get the attention of the Italians to the north and the Germans to the south in North Africa. The fleet wasn't going to any particular destination, but rather was serving as a distraction. While this was going on, Operation Substance got underway. The idea was to have six cargo ships, carrying one light and one heavy AA regiment with 30 field guns, along with medical personnel, some 5,500 men in total, to Malta, escorted by Force H, led by Vice Admiral James Somerville, which consisted of the battleship HMS Nelson, the battlecruiser HMS Renown, a mine layer, three cruisers, eight destroyers, and the carrier HMS Ark Royal. On board the Royal was 21 ferry fulmars and seven ferry swordfish destined for Malta. Also escorting the convoy, at least to Gibraltar, was a part of the home fleet. This convoy left the British Isles on July 13th as a part of a larger convoy, WS-9C. The WS stands for Winston Special, arriving at Gibraltar on July 20th. That was the easy part, relatively speaking. However, for all of Cunningham's trickery, including the heavy radio chatter around Alexandria, the Italians, for the most part, assumed that this convoy was nothing more than the Ark Royal getting close enough to Malta to launch replacement planes. Hence, their attack could have been stronger. As the convoy left Gibraltar, one merchantman, Leinster, ran aground. The next day, July 22nd, the Italian sub, Diaspro, stumbled across the convoy and launched torpedoes at the battlecruiser Renown and the Australian destroyer HMAS Nestor. Fortunately, all the torpedoes missed. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. But it was to be July 23rd that was the day of truth. Less than 24 hours from Malta, the Italians had finally figured out the size of the convoy and reacted with planes and submarines. As nine SM-79 torpedo bombers came in low, five Cant-Z-1007 high-level bombers dropped their ordnance from much higher. 
By now, four Fulmar fighters had launched from the Ark Royal and flew into the path of the torpedo bombers. One Italian plane was splashed, but this left another one open to drop its torpedo. The light cruiser Manchester was hit. But then that torpedo bomber crew paid for its success with their lives. The torpedo blast created a 60-foot-long hole and knocked out both portside propeller shafts. Water rushed in, and soon there was a 12.5-degree list. Also, three officers and 23 crewmen were killed, along with five officers and seven other men from the troops that were to go to Malta. The Manchester would right itself, but now, lower in the water, it was to head back to Gibraltar, escorted by a destroyer. Both ships would safely arrive on July 26th. With this successful strike by the Italians, another seven full Mars were launched, but they were unable to reach the high-level bombers, and the torpedo bombers had already turned around and headed for home. Later that same morning, more Italian SM-79 torpedo bombers found the convoy. A torpedo was dropped and managed to strike the destroyer HMS Fearless at 9.45 a.m. The blast killed 27 crew and wounded 11 more. Besides the loss of life, the Fearless, it was found, could not be saved. So the crew transferred to the destroyer HMS Forrester, and at 10.57 a.m., the Forrester sank the doomed Fearless. In all, Operation Substance saw six Fulmars shot down as well, a solid performance by the Italians. However, 12 Axis aircraft were lost, and the majority of the convoy would safely reach Valletta Harbor on July 24th. In all, 65,000 tons of supplies made it to Malta, specifically 2,000 tons of frozen meat, 2,000 tons of edible oil, and large quantities of sugar, coffee, tea, and fats. The Battle of Valletta was over. This was vital, as the prior month, June, Operation Battleaxe, which had been launched by General Auchinleck Wavell, pressed by Churchill to retake Cyrenaica and rescue those besieged at Tobruk, had gone horribly wrong, with the Allies losing more than half of their tanks on the first day, which meant Malta had to stay strong to help their comrades in North Africa. With this latest shipment by the end of July, there were now 94 heavy AA guns and 96 light AA guns scattered around the island, which was so much better than the July of 1940. One of the men on board this convoy was Lance Bombardier of the 32nd Light AA Regiment, Ken Griffiths, age 19. Being from Wales, it was Malta's heat that he believed would kill him long before an enemy bomb could. Still, he and the others were given three days to get settled in, which meant getting comfortable with sweating all day, even in their tropical kit of shorts and sand-colored shirts. This also meant that Griffiths and those other AA gunners newly arrived would get a proper Italian welcome two days later, on July 26th. As everyone settled down for the night on July 26th, except those still unloading the supplies from the newly arrived convoy, there was a sudden noise that had not been heard in some time on the island. At first, there was the boom-boom of AA guns, and then shouts in English and Maltese, 
but this cacophony was added on to by voices shouting in Italian. That wasn't right. Soon, everyone not on duty and many civilians around the Grand Harbor were rushing out to see what fresh hell awaited them. The convoy of Operation Substance had arrived at the Grand Harbor at 8 a.m. on July 24th. However, the Italians had already planned their next move. At 10.30 p.m. the next day, July 25th, a large Italian vessel had come within 45 miles of Malta. But after stopping for a while, she turned around and headed home. Unbeknownst to the defenders of Malta, she had first unloaded 10 torpedo motorboats capable of launching torpedoes. At 2.10 a.m. on July 26th, the 10 vessels were only 5 miles northeast of Grand Harbor. From this point on, they moved in slowly, hoping their diesel engines would not be heard. The attack, when it came, started at 4.45 a.m., but the first strike did not bode well for the Italians. As the torpedo boats were approaching the Grand Harbor, two of these vessels collided with each other, and given the ordnance on board, exploded. But they happened to be near the St. Elmo Breakwater Bridge that goes from the foreshore of Fort St. Elmo to the breakwater at the entrance of the Grand Harbor. And that would be the only success the Italians had that night. Then all hell broke loose around them. First, the searchlights they had been practicing, drilled by Air Commodore Hugh Pugh, were turned on and pointed seaward. But they weren't the only ones. Rushing out of their homes or apartments, the civilians climbed atop whatever they could to see what was going on. Now that the Germans were gone, the locals went back to running outside during an attack, not thinking much of the Italians' prowess. Some of the civilians had a better vantage spot than others, and so started calling out what they saw, not unlike a sports announcer. But here the game was much more deadly. They told those close by that several Italian diesel-powered torpedo craft, or e-boats as they were known, were coming into the harbor to sink the newly arrived ships that were still being unloaded. This was a rather bold move for the Italians, but the e-boats had proven themselves before. After all, imagine trying to hit a small but fast-moving target that only needed to sail straight for a few seconds to launch their numerous torpedoes at the anchored ships. This could have turned out very badly indeed for the defenders. But it had been the unusual-sounding diesel engines that gave the AA and searchlight crews a heads up. That and the night-flying hurricanes had spotted something in the water and reported it in. Within seconds, the lights were everywhere, and as there was no one else in the water but the attackers, they were easily spotted and tracked, which was all the AA gun crews needed. The Italians had heavily damaged the HMS York back in March in Suda Bay during the Battle of Crete. Perhaps tonight would be another success. But the gun crews closest to the Italians were of Maltese personnel. They had trained hard, and it showed as they lit into the ever-approaching e-boats. This night belonged to the Maltese. Besides the AA guns, there were soon machine guns and six-pound artillery shells 
raining down on the would-be attackers. Not one Italian e-boat made good their threat of sinking a ship in the harbor. No, the only casualty was the breakwater bridge. In exchange of this, it only took six minutes of fighting before the Italian vessels were either sunk or chased away. The survivors were picked up and made POWs or taken to the hospital if needed. In all, 16 Italians were killed, 18 were taken prisoner, and 11 somehow managed to swim back to Sicily. For Il Duce, it was another disaster. Several prisoners were taken to Imtarfa Hospital, just west of the center of the island, far away from the ever-busy Grand Harbor. One such POW had a broken leg and was wheeled in to the hospital, followed by two guards. The prisoner, obviously frightened, tried to look tough. As he was being examined, his eyes darted towards the two soldiers. The nurse, Mimi Cordes, heard him mutter in English, as if I could run away, which, of course, he did wish to, but for him, the war was over. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Perhaps it was the complete failure of this latest Italian attack, brave though it was, that saw the first half of August stay relatively quiet for Malta. So the pilots, AA gun crews, and everyone else drilled and drilled some more. But not the sub-crews. Admiral Cunningham was leaning on them heavily until more of his fleet had returned from repairs. As such, some subs would station themselves just outside the Tripoli Harbor, lying in wait. Indeed, HMS P-33 had left Malta on August 6th, and HMS P-32 had done the same on the 12th, both heading for Tripoli. Subcommander Shrimp Simpson knew that it was best to focus on the enemy's destination versus sailing around in circles in the Mediterranean, hoping to pick up a convoy. And this idea paid dividends, yet the price was high. Sub P-33, led by Lieutenant R.D. Whiteway Wilkinson, or R.D.W.W., knew his men were excited and confident, as they had just the month before, sank the 5,300-ton motor cargo ship Barbaringo near Pantelleria. Hopefully the pickings would be good here as well. Whereas P-32, only commissioned in May of 1941, was hoping for its first kill. The third and last sub operating in the Tripoli area was HMS Unique, which was also riding high as they had sank the cargo ship Financia back in March. The Financia had been part of a convoy, but during the attack, the Unique and the sub Utmost had been ordered to withdraw in order to save on torpedoes. But that was not the case here in August, and with the three British subs in the Tripoli area, they all hoped to head home with enemy pelts, that being turning those ships and the convoy into wrecks. Sure enough, on August 19th, P-32, heading south, 
spotted a small Italian convoy of five merchant ships also heading south, with destroyers, torpedo boats, and planes providing escort. The convoy, led by Rear Admiral Amadeo Nomis di Polone, commander at sea, had departed Naples on the 19th at 2 a.m., and besides a scare soon out of the port, which may have been an Allied attack, the convoy had no other problems upon reaching the North African coast, which is when things went south. As the convoy reached the safe channel to Tripoli, which was a predetermined navigational path leading to the port, she had protecting her five destroyers, three torpedo boats, and a few anti-submarine planes overhead. Thankfully, the trip was almost over. But it was the safe route where the unique P-32 and P-33 were waiting, as they knew the Italians would think they were safe. According to Admiral Polone, the ensuing combat happened thusly. The torpedo boat Partenope was leading the way, followed by the cargo ships, the SS Marco Polo, Esperia, MN Neptunia, and Oceana. They were 11 miles from the beacon of Tripoli and cruising at 17 knots. But maintaining his diligence, Admiral Polone had all three ships, minus the leading PT boat, zigzag. And as they got closer, he had one of the destroyers launch six depth charges, just in case something below was waiting for them. At 10.20 a.m., the cargo ship Esperia spotted a wave created by a torpedo that was coming right at them. As there was no time to maneuver, the Esperia was hit forward of her bridge. Within seconds, two more torpedoes struck true, the second one amidships near the boiler room, and the last one aft of that. Right away, the Esperia leaned heavily to the left and came to a stop. The other vessels, dictated by procedure, continued on, hoping to reach the safety of the port. Indeed, the Marco Polo increased to full speed and sent out a signal that read, Follow me. Meanwhile, the crew of the wounded Esperia began getting into their lifeboats. But by 10.31 a.m., her entire left side was in the water. As is true in any sudden attack, the Italians, other than those on the Esperia, were guessing it was a sub causing all of this mayhem, but they could not be sure, which is when they practically jumped out of their shoes as bombs started coming down near the Esperia. But it turned out these were just the Italian bombers who were going after the attacking sub. Admirably, Admiral Polone ordered three destroyers to help with rescue operations, as well as sending the motorboats to search for the sub, or subs. As it happened to the latest convoy arriving at Malta, the Italians worked hard to quickly unload their ships, should they still come under attack. In all, the Italians managed to save 1,139 people from the Esperia. Yet the Allies did not get cleanly away. When the Unique launched its three torpedoes, P-32, led by Lieutenant B.A.D. Abdi, was not in a good attacking position. So, daring all conventions, he had the sub dive and go under a moored minefield. The idea was to surface on the other side and start firing. But the boat had not gone far enough. When it rose to periscope depth, it struck a mine. The forward position of the sub was immediately flooded, killing eight crewmen. From there, the sub went right to the bottom. 
Of the 24 survivors, most of them would try to use breathing equipment to reach the surface. However, Lieutenant Abney, Petty Officer Kirk, and Crewman Martin went out the conning tower. As they were rising, something happened to Martin, who was dead by the time they broke the surface, though Abdi and Kirk made it successfully. Unfortunately, the rest of the crew did not. Abdi and Kirk were picked up by an Italian motorboat and taken to shore. In 1943, they would be exchanged for Italian prisoners. The remains of P-32 was found in 1999, about 15 nautical miles or 28 kilometers east-northeast of Tripoli, at a depth of 200 feet or 61 meters. As for the P-33, she never resurfaced again. She was either killed during this attack or a few days later near Pantelleria. All hands were lost. Which left Captain Arthur Herzlet's sub unique. She survived this encounter, but was not long for this world. After a refit in October, she was sent to patrol in the Bay of Biscay. She made contact with a fellow vessel on October 9th, but that was the last time she was heard from. The sub HMS Ursula reported detecting underwater explosions that made the crew think the Unique was under attack. The Germans never claimed a victory over her, but when the Unique was reported overdue on October 24, 1942, to arrive at Gibraltar, she was counted as lost, again with all hands. Postscript. The 19-year-old Ken Griffiths from Wales had never traveled before, so Malta was quite the sight to behold, if one could forget the heat. As he was walking down the gangway, Maltese children were waiting nearby and yelled at the troops to throw coins into the harbor. Many of the men did so and laughed as the children did not hesitate to dive in to collect them. But when the kids emerged, and they were experts at this by now, they would yell, Hey, we can't see those. You have to throw silver coins. Ken might have been as green as can be, having never left Wales before, but he knew that trick. It would be copper coins or nothing. And as I think about a trip many years ago to the Caribbean, not much has changed. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.